We're going to plan ourselves in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 36. Allow me to read God's word for you this morning. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But... The least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. The reading of God's holy word. So we look at this test. There is a, a question that is worth asking. There's a question that is worth asking in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 36. The, the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that whenever the word of God is opened, 
we must be prepared to lay upon the operating table of the Lord. And the Lord, through his word, is going to work on us like the great surgeon of heaven that he is. In other words, the word of God is relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. And accounts like we have in Luke chapter 7 prove that afresh to us. Luke records for us in Luke 7 a moment in the history of one of the greatest prophets the world has ever known. And Jesus is getting ready to say the same thing in a few verses. He records a moment for us in the life of this prophet when he doubts. John records in the book of John, he records that Jesus did a whole lot of things while he was on earth. As a matter of fact, they couldn't record all the things that Jesus did because if he did, the world would not be able to contain the books that is written of Jesus Christ. So, out of everything that Jesus did, out of all those actions and scenarios, Luke decides, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, to record us this moment from this doubting prophet. To record for us in the life of one of the greatest prophets the world has ever known, a moment of weakness. Why? Why does he do that? And I think, beloved, I think he does that because Jesus isn't scared or taken aback or at a loss for words when one of his people doubts. He's not taken aback by that. Why? Because Jesus is the great comforter of doubters. So in that respect, it's okay, brothers and sisters, when we have John moments. When we've been walking with the Lord for a long time and we say, Lord, you know, is it, is it all true? Lord, is, is, is everything that I've been following these years, is it true? Are you really the one? It's okay to have John moments. But if we're going to have John moments, we need to have full John moments. What I mean is that we can't just take this text and say, well, John the Baptist doubted, I doubt, end of story, church is over, see you next week. If we're going to have John moments, we need to have full John moments that as John doubts, when is my prayer that we will be like John and find the resolution to our doubts like John did? This is what John does. He goes to the only one who can comfort us in our doubts. He goes to the only one who can ease our doubts away. He goes to the only one who can stoop down to our levels and say, it's okay. I know you're doubting, but I'm the great comforter of doubters. It's this weird sort of glorious way that God has created us. Like we doubt Jesus, but it's only Jesus who can take away our doubts. So we have to go to Jesus, the one that we're doubting at the very moment we go to him. It's weird how that works. But that's what John does. We doubt him, but we must go to Jesus, the one whom we're doubting. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. You ever, you ever watch a movie and you're like, this movie is so good, I just want to get to the end of the story. Well, that's kind of what I just did there, so let's backtrack. Let's backtrack, just a couple of steps. We have John here. When he doubts in Luke chapter 7, he's in the middle of prison. This is why he has to send his messengers to go to Jesus because he can't escape from prison and go to Jesus himself. While he's in prison, he hears of all these things that Jesus Christ is doing. And what he hears, saints, doesn't seem to add up with what he expected Jesus to do. Don't you hate it when Jesus doesn't fit into your little box? So he calls his disciples and he sends them to ask this one profound question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? This is a question saints worth asking. This is a question that we must ask. John isn't the only one throughout the life of Jesus. His disciples had a hard time with Jesus, didn't they? They had a hard time because they, they, they couldn't reconcile who Jesus is with who they wanted Jesus to be. Don't you hate it when Jesus doesn't fit inside your little box? So here we have John, and John is like in the middle of all this. He's like, Jesus, this isn't adding up. So he goes to Jesus. The only way he knows how, he sends his disciples to meet Jesus. He goes to the only one, beloved. He goes to the only one who can truly and undoubtedly and unequivocally answer, are you the one? He goes to Jesus. He goes to the only one who can answer that question. Now let's pause here for a few clicks in Luke chapter 7, 18 to 36. Let's pause because I think John gives us a framework on our presuppositions about who we think Jesus Christ really is. There are times in our lives when we doubt Jesus and we go back to Christ and we have to let Jesus Christ answer the question for himself who he really is. This is why the question is worth asking. We have a tendency, saints, we have a tendency of, of interpreting Jesus by our presuppositions, but never letting Jesus interpret our presuppositions. In other words, we have a tendency to create Jesus in our image, but don't let Jesus create us in his. The more we learn of Jesus, the more we come to realize, amen, how little we know about Jesus. And the more we realize how little we know about Jesus, the more we come to the final conclusion that Jesus is the final authority on who Jesus Christ really is. So we constantly and consistently go back to Jesus and like, Jesus, this is who I thought you were. Correct me if I'm wrong, but affirm me if I'm right. And this is where John the Baptist is. Lord, I had this thought about you, but Lord, correct me if I'm wrong and affirm me if I'm right. But sometimes, uh, saints, we stop short and we're content with saying, Jesus, this is who I thought you were. I'm right. End of story. So you have folks who will say things like, well, Jesus would never do anything like that. 
The God I serve would never allow that to happen. And I'm like, okay, let's ask him. Let's go to his word and find out if you're right. This is exactly where John the Baptist finds himself. Lord, I thought about you like this, but it seems that you're bigger and different and doing greater things than what I expected. Lord, realign how I thought about you. There's a question that is worth asking. Lord, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Because you're somehow different or bigger than what I thought. But the answer, believers, the answer is worth repeating. There's an answer in Luke 7, 7 that is worth repeating. I love how Luke records. I love sometimes how the writer of scriptures write. John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, is he the one? Then notice what happens in verse 20 and 21. When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. They come to Jesus to ask Jesus, is he the one? And then Luke records, when they get there, Jesus is healing everybody. They asked Jesus, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus was like, hold on one second, I'll answer that question for you in a moment. Blind man, you can see. Lame man, you leave for joy. Deaf man, you can hear. I'm sorry, what were you asking me again? <laughs> it's, like, it's like going to ask Michael Jordan, is he the greatest basketball player of all time? And then Michael Jordan is like, hold on, and he turns around and dunks on LeBron James. And he turns around like, what were you asking me again? It's like going to an essential oil salesperson. <laughs> well, apparently we got a lot of essential oil salespeople with us. Wow, that's pretty impressive. To ask them is, are essential oils the greatest thing of all time? And they say, hold on a second. Then they turn around and they start diffusing thieves and frankincense and lavender. And you're like, man, I had a headache when I came here, but now I'm so relaxed. <laughs> Like as you're asking the question, your question is being answered by what you are beholding. But Christ, in the glorious way that only Christ can, the glorious comforter of doubters, he not only answers their question by actions, but he answers their question by words. Notice here that he doesn't respond to John in some drawn-out exhortation about disbelief. Or he doesn't condemn John like, John, you have such a lack of faith. He responds to John, and let us not miss this as we go through the text. He responds to John by the word of God. Listen to his response in verses 22 and 23. He replied to them, go, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, those who are poor are told the good news. These are not just some cute resume bullet points that Jesus sends back to tell John. No, Jesus quotes scripture to John the Baptist. 
He quotes Isaiah 26, 19, where it's written, your dead will live. Their bodies will be raised awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew and the earth will bring out the departed scriptures. Jesus quotes scripture to John. He quotes Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for water will gush into the wilderness and streams into the desert. He quotes scripture to John. He quotes Isaiah 61 verse one. The spirit of the Lord is on me because God has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. In other words, Jesus says to John, John, you, you know your Old Testament, right? I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You know all those glorious promises that Isaiah writes about and Malachi writes about and Micah writes about. I am the fulfillment of all of those glorious promises. He says to John, I, I know it may take a while for me to fulfill my promises, but all the promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. It may take a while, but Jesus hasn't failed yet. Don't you hear the song sort of playing in the background as he sends this message back to John as the song is echoing, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You haven't failed me yet. John was doubting. And the way Jesus realigns the doubts of John, the way Jesus comforts John in his doubts is that he quotes scripture to him. This is why, beloved, we need the word of God proclaimed to us week in and week out. This is why those who stand behind this sacred desk labor to proclaim the word of God to you because some of you may have entered those doors coming off of a week full of doubts and weaknesses. This is why we don't give you quips and quotes and worldly philosophies because we need the word of God to comfort us and only the word of God can comfort us. None can comfort like Jesus. Christ. But here's the question. If very God incarnate, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beloved one, can use Scripture to comfort a doubter. Use scripture to cut through the doubts to get to the doubter. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uses scripture <laughs> to comfort, why can't we? If he trusted, shouldn't we? Now let the words of Jesus marinate for a moment. 
the words of Jesus Christ marinate in your minds. Listen to what he says there at the end of that section. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let that marinate. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are those who are not scandalized by some preconceived notions of what they think Jesus Christ should be and what they think Jesus Christ should look like. Blessed is the one who doesn't presume upon Jesus, but lets Jesus himself answer the question and weigh in on the debate of who Jesus Christ really is. Because at the end of the day, he is the final authority. Blessed is the one in all the fullness and robustness of Jesus Christ. You're not offended by the sharp edges of Jesus Christ. And you don't try to sort of saw down or saw off the hard edges of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who sees Jesus in all of who he is and is not offended by him. There's a question worth asking. Jesus, are you the one? There is an answer worth repeating. Yes, Jesus is the very fulfillment of all of Scripture. Now there is a truth in Luke chapter 7 worth remembering. And it's found in verses 24 through 28. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed live in luxury and are in royal palaces. What then did you see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom is greater than he. That's a truth worth remembering. Notice John doubts. Jesus comforts John in his doubts. And then Jesus spends, saints, four verses talking about how great John's ministry is and how great John the Baptist is. Did you see that there? Let me say this, and let me say, I'm trying to say it as clearly as I, as I can. The doubts and this momentary weakness of John the Baptist does not negate the calling that Jesus had upon his life, nor does it negate his identity that Jesus and Jesus alone shapes. This momentary weakness doesn't negate the calling that was on John's life, nor does it negate his identity that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Even with doubts, Jesus can say, and I love how Luke records this, among women, there is not one born who is greater than John. You talk about like a redundancy. Is there anybody who's born who's not born of a woman? But Luke records that to get the point across. There is none greater than John, comma, in the scriptures. I love commas in scriptures because it tells you that the story isn't over. Comma, B-U-T. And I love the B-U-T's in Scripture as well. But 
the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus does here. He takes the widow who places their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He takes the incarcerated man who places his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He takes the former adulterer who places his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He takes the former thief, the former con man or con woman who places their faith in Jesus Christ. He takes the child who places their faith in Jesus Christ. He takes the pastor who week in and week out shepherds his flock faithfully of 10 members. He takes all of those individuals and he says, John is the greatest. Yet these folks over here are greater. The least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest of prophets. Hallelujah. And I say hallelujah because saints, he's talking to us. In case you didn't find your place in the story, we are the least in the kingdom. Praise God we're the least in the kingdom. Because Jesus says we're greater than John the Baptist. I think oftentimes, saints, when we read the, the text of Scripture, we oftentimes say, well, man, man, I wish I had like the faith of Moses or like the faith of Noah. I wish I had the faith of John the Baptist. And they're looking ahead like, man, I wish I had the faith, faith of the saints of, of Gospel City Church. Why? Because we're standing on the other end of Calvary. We have beheld Jesus Christ died and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And John is like, man, I wish I was on the other end of that thing. So Jesus says the least who places their faith firmly in Jesus Christ is greater than the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. There's a question worth asking. Jesus, are you the one? There's an answer worth repeating. Yes, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He hasn't failed us yet. There's a truth worth remembering. The least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest prophet. And lastly, lastly, there's a comparison worth noting here in Luke 7 at the end of verse 36. I'm going to say a few things about these last few verses and then we'll be done. I, I, I joke with the man at the retreat this weekend that, you know, when a preacher says this is the last thing, you still got like 45 minutes left. So just be forewarned. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Jesus makes a comparison in the text. He makes two comparisons. He compares the people of this generation, of which the generation that you and I are living are included. He compares them to children, and then he compares himself to John the Baptist. Now let me summarize these last few verses for you. Basically, what Jesus is saying in these last few verses is that those in his generation, in our generation, have no idea what they want from Christians. He says, as he gives this analogy, we, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. Flute, this instrument that was commonly played at weddings. He said, when, when, I, when we played the flute for you, you didn't dance. The flute held in the hand of a Christian as it plays this melodious tune, non-believers hear in and they say, well, that's, that's not what we want. But then he goes to the other end of the spectrum. He says, we sang this song of lament you didn't even weep. A song of lament sang by Christians, non-believers sort of looks in and says, that's not what we want either. 
It's this quintessential, we can't win for losing. And then he furthers comparison by saying, John the Baptist came not eating and drinking, and y'all said he had a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came eating and drinking, and y'all said, look, a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, believers, the culture that is hostile to Jesus Christ, they're not in the business of accepting what Christians do. To put it another way, and we're going to have a little family meeting right now. Y'all ever have family meetings where your parents call you in? It's like, hey, we're going to have a little family meeting. Usually, something was going on, right? Put it another way, it is completely futile for Christians to acquiesce, to submit to the changing winds of culture. Because the changing winds of culture do or does, I need like a verb, verb subject agreement there, it, the changing winds of culture, it does what the culture does. It changes. So Jesus says they have no idea what they want from Christians. They don't know if they want Christians to eat or drink. They don't know if they want Christians to not eat or drink. And saints, as you read this text, understand that Christians have freedom in this. The rejection of the gospel is not due to its form or its sincere presentation. The rejection of the gospel is a flat-out rejection of the person of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. It's not a rejection of you. They're rejecting your Savior. When we listen to the, well, maybe if Christians were more like this, then I would consider becoming a Christian. Then you talk to somebody else the next day and it's the completely opposite thing. Well, maybe if Christians were more like this, then I would consider becoming a Christian. We find ourselves in this endless game of changing both our personalities and our convictions when Christ says, just be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the results to me. There's freedom from the world in this, and, and I hate to say it or I love to say it, but there's also freedom from other Christians in this analogy that Jesus Christ here, this comparison, this, this understanding that there are Christians who think that if your life is not exactly like my life, you are doing something wrong. We have far too many John the Baptist Christians who look at those who are eating and drinking and saying, what are you doing? It's not how Christians are supposed to live. And we have far too many, notice the quotes, Jesus Christ Christians who look at the John the Baptist Christians and say, what, what are you doing not eating and drinking? That's no way to live. But saints, understand the analogy here. Be who God made you to be with all the idiosyncrasies of your personalities. Just be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, if Christ doesn't do for non-believers what he did for us, that is make us alive, call us out from the grave, everything we say is futile. If Christ doesn't unstop, as Isaiah says, deaf ears, 
if he doesn't open blind eyes to behold that Jesus Christ is beautiful, it doesn't matter what we say or what we don't say. It doesn't matter what we eat or what we don't eat. It doesn't matter what we drink or what we don't drink. If the Holy Spirit is not in it and Christ isn't doing a work, their lives aren't going to change anyway. Because if the Holy Spirit isn't in it and Christ isn't doing a work, our lives wouldn't have changed anyway. Because as Christ says, wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, it vindicates sort of the lifestyle of the one who presented the message of Jesus Christ to them. And what a varied rainbow of personalities that is, brothers and sisters. Don't conform your personality or your proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the culture or to the one sitting next to you in the chair. Conform your presentation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conform it merely to what the word of God says. And I love, saints, how our passage ends here in verse 30. I love how it ends. The text says he... One of the Pharisees then invited Christ to come eat with them. And then you know what Jesus did? Scandalous. He entered the house of the Pharisee and then reclined at the table. Wait, wait, wait a second. Isn't this the same Pharisee, the same group of Pharisees that Jesus Christ was just talking about who rejected the gospel, who rejected God? Isn't this the same group of Pharisees who just a chapter earlier tried to trap Jesus Christ by all their smart and philosophical sayings? Isn't this the same group of people that try to reject Jesus Christ at every turn? And then this Pharisee invites Christ in and Christ just moseys on into his house. Not only does he mosey on to his house, he jumps in the lazy boy chair and reclines. A lazy boy chair is still a thing? I don't know if they're still, still around. Cool. That illustration makes sense then. He reclines at the table of the one who is part of a group that hates him, who rejects him. Are you offended by that? Are you offended that Jesus Christ associates himself with sinners and tax collectors? Are you offended that Jesus is the friend of sinners? Saints, if you are offended by that, I got bad news. You're a sinner. But if you're not offended by that, if you're not offended that Jesus Christ moseys on into the house of people who reject him, I got good news for you. He does it all the time. And he did it for us. He moseyed on into our house, reclined at the table, and transformed us. Be careful. Be careful those who hate Jesus Christ, who invite Christ into your house. Be careful because you might start loving him. Would you pray with me?
Stand with me, saints, as we pray. Lord, we are grateful that you're the friend of sinners. We are grateful that you know us and you know our doubting seasons, yet you comfort us with the word of God. We're thankful that you are Lord and you are Lord alone. And being Lord, you, you love sinners. Being Lord, you haven't failed yet. Being Lord, your promise, oh Lord, your glorious promise, it stands. It will never fail. Praise your holy name. Pray it all in the glorious and comforting name of Jesus Christ. Amen.